Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Personalization Outbreak Podcast, your go-to podcast for meaningful conversations with influential leaders from different sectors every week. Now, this week, we'll talk about why prioritizing health and well-being will serve as a competitive advantage to large employers in their quest to recruit, retain, and develop top talent. Our guest today, Harlan Levine, is President of Strategy in Business Ventures at City of Hope. In this role, Harlan is accountable for strategy, innovation, and growth, drug commercialization, payer strategies, and the Center for International Medicine. Harlan also serves as the chairman of the board for Access Hope, City of Hope's wholly owned subsidiary focused on serving the employer market and making leading edge cancer care available to all regardless of geography. Now together, we'll discuss the systemic issue of minority populations being underrepresented in clinical trials and how that affects the overall role of benefits management and how large employers are dealing with more mass variances in the individual as demographics change. We will also discuss the future of benefits management and how employers should evolve in providing health and well-being solutions to their employees. Now, before we get started, click the like button below, share it with your colleagues, and subscribe to our YouTube channel and social media at Glenn Yopi so that you can stay in touch with our most recent content about leadership in the age of personalization. Let's get started. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Welcome to the show, Harlan. Thanks, Glenn. It's great to be here. Thank you, Harlan. So, Harlan, take a moment to to share with our audience uh, that's watching us on YouTube and with their favorite podcast channel. Who is City of Hope and Access Hope, and how do these two come together? Well, so City of Hope is a not-for-profit biomedical institution that's focused on finding cures for cancer and diabetes. It's designated by the National Institutes of Health and National Cancer Institute as a comprehensive cancer center. And we really focus predominantly on clinical care and giving extraordinary care to patients and their family for the treatment and cure of cancer. But all you really need to know about City of Hope is on our ceremonial gates, where we have an expression that says, there's no profit in curing the body if in the process we destroy the soul. We really try to take care of the whole person. Access Hope is a wholly owned subsidiary of City of Hope. And we created that specifically to do something that's never been done before. It's a revolutionary idea of, instead of saying patients have to come to City of Hope to get the extraordinary NCI level care, we've created a body that takes that care directly to the patient, regardless of geography, where they live. And our partners in doing that are the health plans and the employers. Thank you, Harlan. Now, in full disclosure for our audience, I've, I've known Harlan for nearly seven years and uh, have had the, the, the privilege of uh, working with 
uh, City of Hope and its incredible uh, physicians and administrators and leadership. And I could tell you one thing, uh, this is a special institution. And when you experience it, you'll understand why they are the leaders in cancer care. So Harlan, before we jump into the topic of why large employers must prioritize health and well-being first, let's get to know, let's, let's let, it, let everyone know a little bit about who you are, Harlan. So a couple questions. Why is it that you find your most authentic self when helping people and their families respond to healthcare issues and challenges? So, Glenn, uh, I'm glad your audience is interested in getting to know the real Harlan Levine. <laughs> of course they are. You know, I think part of the answer to your question lies in the fact that I'm a physician and growing up, that's all I wanted to do. And I never really thought I'd be in an administrative role. So the the closer I can get to really being a, a hands-on physician, the, the better I feel about what I do. I also recognize that I'm I'm really in a unique position here at City of Hope. As you said, what we do here is very special and, and City of Hope is also unique. And I have the the opportunity to connect people at, at their time of greatest need, you know, you know, entering, embarking on a journey that they really didn't choose to be on at a time where there's a shock to the system, it's disruptive to their family, and I can connect them to the extraordinary expertise and compassion that's at City of Hope. And I can find some, you know, nothing more rewarding than that. So that's why I feel like what I do today is authentic, and it really fulfills me uh, both professionally and personally. You know, I didn't think I was going to go here, Harlan, but what you just said uh, is what people are drawn to in leaders. Uh, and the fact that you feel that way um, says a lot about you, your character, and in what you solve for, um, and really the future, not just of Access Hope, uh, but City of Hope. G give, us a, give us a sense of where you see Access Hope and City of Hope going in the next five years. So, Glenn, I want to pick up on, on something you said, because what I love about City of Hope is it's the whole team at City of Hope that feels the same way. And in, in, in some ways, uh, the, the leaders of City of Hope and Access Hope feel like it's our obligation to fill the gaps that are there to, to make. And you'll hear about the gaps as we talk more this hour. But there's extraordinary opportunity to make things better. And we all feel the both the privilege and the obligation to make that happen. So in terms of where City of Hope is planning to go over the next five years, we will continue to do what we do best, which is focus on the research. Um, and what, what's special about our research is it isn't just research in a laboratory, but we're experts at translational care. Mm -hmm. If you go back in our history, 41 years, we actually invented human synthetic insulin. And then years later, or decades later, we uh, discovered the pathway that led to what are called monoclonal antibodies. And then even more recently, we've been highly involved in licensing intellectual property um, in the newest treatment of cancer, which involves the immune system and developing things like CAR T cells and, and other immune modulators. So we'll continue to do that, but we're also gonna continue to deliver that, that world-class supportive, uh, comprehensive, compassionate care that we deliver to patients. And you know, 10 years ago, we were really focused on one site and now we're in 30 sites across Southern California. We'll continue to grow our footprint and we'll probably do it in partnership across the country. So between those two areas, we'll continue to pursue 
what we've done for years, but we also recognize that cancer is changing. Uh, several years ago, we affiliated with an institution that was the leading institution in genomic medicine. Mm -hmm. We'll continue to look for partnerships and affiliations like that. And we also recognize that care is transforming. You mentioned that pandemic has changed the world. Well, we recognize that people are going to look at uh, how they receive care in a different way going forward. And we want to be at the, at the leading edge of that care transformation. And, and when we say patient-centered care, really mean patient-centered care. I think some people are friendly to patients, but we don't really organize the health system around patients. And I can't think of a more important patient than the cancer patient to orient the system. So we'll continue to, to do that. And as, an, as a representation of that, uh, you asked about Ask, Access Hope also. So Access Hope is just getting started. As I mentioned before, it's a revolutionary product. We, uh, we, we wanna deliver um, everything we know about cancer to helping the patient uh, with cancer across the country. So Access Hope will continue to uh, fight cancer with everything we know, as we say around the office. Mm -hmm. And we're gonna develop partnerships with employers that are highly motivated to help their workforce with, with health plans. And we continue to, uh, to grow that. And we're gonna leverage uh, technology as it becomes available to deliver that in the most efficient way and get it to the, the hands of the, 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 get the information that, that is needed in the hands of both the treating doctor and the patient. So everyone has the opportunity to get option, uh, optimal care. So Harlan, clearly the pandemic uh, has made one thing very clear. Large employers are now officially in the business of health and wellness or health and well-being. And as the workplace becomes more hybrid and large employers need to start seeing the whole person experience and place that whole person experience at the center of their workforce transformations efforts. I mean, prioritizing health and well-being first will really serve as a competitive advantage as the pandemic has changed what matters to employees as they now place more value on their physical, social, and mental health. Tell us how Access Hope can play an integral role in helping large employers solve for their unique health and well-being needs. Well, there's a lot to unpack in what you just said. So let me start by saying employers are in the healthcare business and they have been for a long time. If you look at their expense lines, healthcare is usually one of their top three expenses. And typically after uh, salary and benefits, I mean, after salary, it's usually like healthcare expense and then obviously uh, durable product, uh, goods that they have to purchase. So it's a, it, they're in the business to, be, to begin with. I think what the pandemic has done is changed how employers think about healthcare. So, so first of all, it's markedly accelerated uh, telehealth and virtual care. So, and, and employers have already been in that space, but it's been as an add-on. I think they now see it as integral part of the care. I think the other interesting thing about not just the pandemic, but the social events that have occurred during the time of the pandemic is we always knew that there were disparities in healthcare based on race, socioeconomic standing. But between the, 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 the murder of George Floyd and all the, um, the awareness that, that is now that exists in our culture about the disparities and how we just treat human beings and the absolute 
proof positive that people in this pandemic, people of, with COVID infections did worse based on race and location. And it's unequivocal that the outcomes are different based on who you are and where you live and your, and your, your standing. That's been true in cancer for decades. And we've known it, but no one's really, you know, had it rise to the surface of awareness. So let me stop you, if I may, Harlan, really quick. This is important. Why did it take a pandemic for this to rise to the surface, in your opinion? Well, I think it's because, as we, we learned years ago, healthcare is complex. Who knew? And there are so many issues to face in, in healthcare that, you know, in the context of our discussion today, it seems so obvious that everyone should know about it. But right. But we've been wrestling with how do you get benefits to people? How do you keep, mm. how do you address affordability? How do you address um, the support, you know, the psychosocial support that people need? So there's lots of priorities in healthcare. And there are many of us who have been working on closing disparities in healthcare. In fact, Access Hope's initial premise years ago when it was ideated you know, four or five years ago was to close those, those gaps. But it's not the only problem in healthcare, so you can't sure. fault anybody. Yeah. But I, but I think now is a time to listen. And Glenn, if you you and your audience will indulge me, let me just give you a, a few facts to set yeah. the context for this. But thank you. Um, let me start with the fact that children, adolescents, and children of Hispanic descent have a anywhere between twenty and forty percent greater likelihood of leukemia. We don't really talk about that. Asian and Pacific Islanders are twice as likely to die from stomach cancer than white adults. If you look at American Indian and Native um, and, and Alaska Native adults, they're twice as likely to um, develop liver and bile duct cancer. <laughs> and it's not just based on race. Bisexual women are 70% more likely to have a diagnosis of cancer than heterosexual women. So, and, and, and I'm, what is appalling to me is the statistic that African-American men are more than double, 111% more likely to die of prostate cancer. And African-American women are 39% more likely to die of breast cancer. So those are the facts. And if we don't create solutions that address those facts, we're, we're never really gonna close those disparities in healthcare. So I hope that sets a framework for the rest of our discussion uh, this hour. <laughs> It certainly does, especially when you consider that the cultural demographic shift has reached its tipping point. I mean, I feel like based upon those statistics, there's a lot of catching up to do. So what, what do we do? <laughs> now we're just going to flow here, Harlan. What do we do to create the room and the space for more clinical trials? It seems like we need to know more about these individuals so that we can best serve them, no? Well, we do, and, and clinical trials are a, a, a vital part of this. Uh, probably not surprising, given what we what I just described. Clinical trials in general are undersubscribed. Maybe three to four percent of cancer patients get on trials. Hmm. Um, but again, minority and underserved populations are underrepresented in that group. So even far fewer in that group. Let me just take a step back and 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 say this is a systemic issue across the full continuum of cancer. So a recent study that in fact, just a month ago came out 
that confirmed what we kind of suspected, which is fewer than 50% get cancer care that is based on what's called the National Cancer Center Network guidelines or, or, or recommendations for care. This is a group of multiple cancer institutions that have come together, have worked looking at the science and the data to determine the best way to take care of cancer patients. Less than half get that recommended treatment, and then it's far fewer for underserved populations. So that's, again, this is a global issue. Yep. To get to your question about research, that's part of it. I would start with screening. Hmm. We know that, again, there's a, um, that not enough people get cancer screening based on recommendations. And again, underserved populations and minority populations are not doing uh, as well in the percentages of people getting screened. So the diagnosis is later in those patients. Mm -hmm. And then you can start talking about treatment and access to treatment is um, a challenge. Some of it is economic. Some of it is um, related to what you said about availability of clinical trials. So there is a lot that we can really address in taking care of that, that, that whole cancer issue. So how do large employers become part of this, uh, let's call it this movement <laughs> to, to really tackle social determinants? And how does Access Hope uh, guide them? So employers are doing a lot. And they can do a lot more, and they're 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 getting highly motivated in this in this area. Um, so, boy, you know, you have to start at the beginning, which is if you if you're a large or medium sized business, it's just good business to be addressing diversity, equity, and inclusion broadly. And if you look at it from a humanistic point of view, one's health and mental health are a key component. Of, of really bringing true equity into, into, into society. So employers understand that and they're looking at what they can do to improve um, their interventions and their support for a good healthcare experience. So I would say more broadly than cancer, they're looking at the, this, these data elements and they're thinking about how to communicate and educate in, in, in ways that are culturally sensitive but the message will resonate. So that's what they're doing already. But when it comes to cancer, we need action now. I mean, people are dying of cancer now. In fact, if you can address the social determinants of health in cancer, you can reduce 34% of the mortality. Wow. So, the, the, so the problem needs to be addressed now. And Access Hope is a solution that has uniquely addressed that, that program. And we find employers are very attracted to Access Hope because what it does at its essence is it says, we recognize that patients aren't getting evidence-based care. We recognize that minorities are more prone to have that challenge. We recognize that depending on your geography, your mortality rate is higher. Mm -hmm. And we want a solution that will close that gap today. And that's part of what Access Hope does. It, it identifies a high-risk cancer patient and it proactively intervenes to work with the treating physician to make sure that doctor has all the information they need to have to take the optimal care of that patient and to deliver that care to that patient. So Harlan, given what you've explained to, to the audience, how is the, the role, the function of benefits management changing? I mean, I mean, just a few years ago, everyone just got the same uh, plan and 
and on they go. I mean, but now you're dealing with five different generations in the workplace. You're dealing with more mass variants of the individual as demographics change. I mean, how is benefits management change and in, in what role does access help play in that change? So let's, let's address each of those issues. You, you now can have four or five generations working in the workforce. And that's a particularly compelling statement when it comes to cancer, because unlike many conditions, when, when a family has cancer, it, it, it impacts the entire family. So now in the workforce, hmm. you have people with cancer, which is still predominantly a disease of the aging, but can affect any group. But you also have people taking care of their parents with cancer. You have people taking care of their spouses with cancer, and you may even have people taking care of their children with cancer. So it, it, it affects the entire continuum of your workforce. And employers tell me all the time that unlike any other condition, a cancer diagnosis in the workplace affects the entire workforce. Um, and it, you know, and it impacts workplace productivity, absenteeism, and presenteeism. So this is a, a global issue that 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 benefit managers are now addressing uh, full on. The, the the way their role has changed, I would say, is actually connected to something you said, which is they used to just buy a plan, <laughs> and it was, it, you know, these aren't your words, but it was kind of one size fit all. Yeah, right. <laughs> I think people are beginning to to recognize that. Um, to, to scale a solution and, and pay claims and have benefits and have a network, you need to have a certain element that is one size fit all, but it's not really sufficient for the cancer patient. Cancer is different, and we'll talk a little bit about how it's different, but I think managers are saying now that these um, homogenized solutions that maybe be, be good for wellness and back pain, or, you know, I'm a primary care doctor myself, but taking care of high blood pressure and diabetes is pretty standard. The guidelines don't change very often and, and there are very clear established guidelines, but cancer, the, the, issue, the field is changing so rapidly. Optimal care is changing by the week. The doubling time of cancer information is in months, not decades like it used to be. Yeah. Um, and the need for specialization is great. And, and I would argue, that cancer is one of those conditions where, um, you, know, you know, specialty access to specialty care is actually advantageous. You know, if people are worried about affordability, but there's nothing less valuable than getting the wrong care. And as you know, genomics becomes such an important part of the cancer diagnosis and treatment, it's really hard for the general oncologist to keep up. So. A solution that worked 10 years ago when there were just a handful of cancers and treatments, it just doesn't work today when you literally have hundreds of different permutations of cancer and you need specialists like you find at NCI centers like City of Hope or our new, new partner at Northwestern Medicine. Um, those are the experts that can help partner with community oncologists and make sure patients all have access to the best care at the right time. How are, um, as you talk through this, Harlan, how are large employers um, providing more action towards uh, preventive care, education? I mean, and given HIPAA laws, how does this all come together? Well, so employers have been involved in wellness for, you know, a couple of decades now. So they, they do health screenings. 
they've also invested in you know having web uh, like health sites on their uh, employer portal. So a few will develop them on their own, but others will have partners or or vendors to to bring those that information to the to the um, to the workforce. But it's hard, you know. It, it's it's not a natural place for people to go uh, to get health information. They, you know, they don't think about their health plan or even their employer as being that trusted mm-hmm. source. And that's actually one of the, the big advantages that Access Hope has and why people um, having employers have engaged with us and people more important than the employers are the actual people that work for the employers or have benefits. City of Hope has been around for 108 years. We're a trusted brand, we're not for profit. So when you see our information on screening and put even, even things like putting on um, sunblock, yeah. it, it's a more compelling message than what you may be getting from your health plan. So employers are looking for trusted brands in the condition that will really be compelling to their employees and their beneficiaries to pay attention. You know, this is, gosh, Harlan, I'm so glad we're having this discussion. And- uh, for many for many reasons, but it, it's clear to me that uh, while maybe large employers have been in the business of healthcare for a while, uh, it still feels relatively new uh, because because of all the things that we've been talking about. And so I'm going to share a quote that came out of the IBM uh, 2021 CEO study that that they did uh, as consequences from the pandemic and what their what CEOs were saying and. Um, but, and so when CEOs were asked, um, or sorry, excuse me, when asked if companies were supporting the physical and emotional health of employees, 80% of the executives agreed or strongly agreed. Yet when the same question was posed to employees, the figure was glaringly low at 46%. Now, I want to make sure our audience knows that, you know, we're now having a really organic conversation. I didn't plan to ask Harlan this question, but do you have any perspective as to why there would be such a gap here? Well, I, I think the gap makes sense because if you are a part of an executive team and you're asking, have you taken action to support psychosocial or, or, or mental well-being? The answer is yes. So you can check the box. But if you're the recipient of it, what you're, you're answering a different question is, are, are those interventions or those programs, are they meaningful to me? And that's very different. And that gets to the point of they need to be tailored to the individual. Uh, it, we, we've had a trans and, and there, there's cultural differences in how people like to receive information. And now we're talking about personalized medicine. We're down to the genomic level. And the programs just haven't caught up. And so, yeah, people are delivering programs, but they're not resonating with the people who receive them. Again, I I really want to, you know, focus on, on, on access hope because, you know, we talked about the cognitive aspect of, if you recall, I said on the most complex cases, we proactively intervene, support the doctor, we actually design it so the patient doesn't have to lift a finger because we know it's so hard for a cancer patient and we don't want to add to the burden. That said, 
we recognize there's a full continuum of cancer patients. And I, and I hope, Glenn, this answers your question. Yeah. There are some people that don't have the most complex cancer, but they still want a second opinion. They can opt in. So that's another program we have. Um, it's an expert, adv expert advisory review where a, a, a patient with cancer or a, a, a covered member with cancer can say, I want an expert opinion. And then they have all the same services delivered and we still support the treating doctor. But here's the part about the psychosocial support. We know there are gonna be many cancer patients that they don't want a full second opinion, they don't wanna offend mm. or interfere with their doctor, but they still need help on their journey. So yeah. we also created what we call the cancer support line where any cancer patient or any covered member can call about any cancer issue for themselves or any of their family members. It doesn't have to be a covered member because we know the emotional toll is so challenging, is so burdensome on, on, a, on a family that has cancer. We get questions from, I need to think about chemotherapy and I got to work and I have children. How do I strategize to, you know, a loved one is going to get radiation therapy. Does that mean they glow? What is it? I mean, I mean, we get really fundamental questions and we're able to engage at, on this nurse line at a very personal level and help support people with education and information that they need to help on this journey. That's what people are looking for. They want support across the entire journey of, of the cancer experience. Yeah. And, you know, as I hear you, Harlan, um, I think this is the type of conversation that not just benefits managers and executives need to be hearing, but really the employees themselves. I mean, it seems to me that beyond benefits management, there's opportunity for people in uh, corporate social responsibility and, uh, as you mentioned earlier, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, uh, obviously, uh, chief human resources officers, but even chief strategy or marketing officers. I mean, this this goes back to the humanity of of our of our employees uh of how society's changing this is a big issue and the way you've communicated is it, so simplistically that can be trusted so I, i'm i'm just grateful that you've taken the time to to break it down because if we stuck at the meta level it seems big but as you've broken it down these seem to be fundamental component parts of service and care for those uh, families and individuals who have um, have experienced uh, cancer in their loved ones and, and those who have lost family members uh, from cancer. So um, I feel like you've given me hope as uh, as I talk to employees and employers about what they're thinking and feeling about the chronic disease states that they're most susceptible to. This is a very comprehensive yet um, really foundationally strong approach to really awaken not just the employer, but the employee that there is a way uh, and a method and a process to address these issues that quite candidly, many uh, wouldn't want to talk about. So uh, I love the way you've discussed it. And I think, you know, Access Hope is really going to be a powerful force in the market. So on that note, and you've kind of addressed this, but let me ask you. Well, this well Glenn, before you ask, sure. I want to pick up on a, on a few things that, sure. that you said. So first of all, yeah. you are entirely correct that it isn't 
just now the um, the the benefits people that are interested in this. There is a equity issue here. I mean, the facts are so clear that you need to do something today to solve the problem because people are dying. And and when you intervene with giving people better information, there's a life dividend. I mean, people will live longer or be cured because of this information. So we're now seeing that the C-suite and corporate social responsibility have an interest in this area and, and, and programs like Access Hope that actually uh, connect the dots today. And, and, and we talk about how we want people to have access to great care, whether you work in the mailroom or the boardroom, whether right. you live in Biloxi or Anchorage or New York, you deserve that same level of care. We know that not everyone for a variety of reasons can travel to an NCI designated center. About 20% of patients will get part of their care there, but there's the other 80%. We are not saying that it is wrong to get care in the community. We're just saying that things are changing so fast, the system needs help. And we specifically designed this program. And we got into a room four years ago and we said, we're not gonna think like a hospital and we're not gonna think like a health plan. We're gonna build a program around the individual doctor I'm sorry, the individual patient and their doctor, and we're going to package it up in a way that employers are going to care about it. And that's what we went out and did. And let me tell you a really heartwarming story, and then I'll, I, I, I'll get to your next question. But no, no, go one, ahead. Of our, yeah. one of our largest employers, um, and, and, and I should tell you, we have 43 large employers, 18 of them are Fortune 500. We cover over 2.3 million people today. We have more coming on in, in, in later in the year and next year. Um, one of the largest employers has shared this information about our programs. And, and, and one of the ways that our cancer support line gets connected to people with cancer is that the, the supervisors in the workplace, the foremen, the supervisors, are actually calling us up and saying, my employee, Mary, has cancer. And I want to help her take the first step. Can I put her on the phone? Wow. I mean, it is, we never envisioned that happening. But that's how um, compelling the offer is. That's how impactful cancer is in the workplace. And that's how good people are. And, 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 and I, I, there are a few stories that, you know, we come across on a weekly basis that, you know, just touch your heart. This was one that, um, quite frankly, I'll never forget the first time someone in a store called about one of the people working in the store and said, I, I really want to help my, my, my employee. Harlan, what do you tell those large employers who say, well, you know, cancer is too specialized. I get that it's prevalent, but, you know, there's cost involved. We're not ready for it yet. I mean, it seems to me that there should be no excuse for this. I mean, what do you, but what do you tell them? Well, so it depends, who, you know, who you're talking to, but, you know, the, the, the narrative will inevitably involve the following. It, cancer is often one of the top three expenses for an employer. And here's the interesting thing is, while it all, the incidence of cancer is only half a percent a year, and the people that are actively in cancer treatment is about 1%, it is somewhere between 12 and 14% of the healthcare expense. So it just on an affordability agenda, which we recognize is important, 
it should be very high on their list of priorities to address, number one. Number two, we can go over more data, but I think I've inundated you with data. The, the outcomes are so variable that people are getting. So it, it is ripe for change and disruption and they need to do something different because what they're doing today, quite frankly, just isn't working. So it's time for a change. So that's, that's, that's number two. And then number three, and we talked about this, but when someone has cancer, it is so disruptive to the individual, the family, the workplace, that there's actually a business win in doing the right thing for the patient, getting them the right care. You know, we aren't always just recommending better, fancier care. We have plenty of cases where we're just saying, you know, there's established guidelines for this care. Let's get someone on the right guideline. Or, yeah. you know, this isn't just a medical oncology issue. There's a surgical component or a pathologic pathology component mm -hmm. where you need to get a second opinion because we don't think the diagnosis is right. Let's get those second opinions. Let's, let's connect people up and make sure they're getting an integrated experience. That's what we do. And when you talk to employers from that perspective, it really is hard to not want to you know, engage with us and do something different. So Harlan, as we close, um, give me your vision uh, for, you know, you had mentioned that large employers have been in the business of health care for a while now, but where do you think this trajectory is, is headed for the large employer? Because for me, it sounds like it's just getting started. Uh, for you, it's been around for a while, but I think the pandemic has created this elevated need. Uh, it has. But, but, but having said that, where's this trajectory headed? It seems to me that large employers need to be partnering not only with Access Hope, but others like Access Hope uh, that deal with other chronic disease states. Like it's just non-negotiable. Where's this headed? Yeah. So let me build up to that. I think what's different now is it starts with knowledge, right? We talked about the disparities in healthcare. You need to know about those. And then you, once you know about them, you need to do something different. You, the next step for us is to get people to understand that cancer really is different. We talk, let's compare it to other really important conditions that, that, that drive morbidity and discomfort for people like back pain, diabetes. But with cancer, it's low frequency, but higher mortality. The guidelines of optimal care are changing all the time. It needs more, you know, research is different today. Because of genomics, it's targeted. And getting on a trial can actually have a higher chance of working the conventional treatment, depending on the cancer. So there's an underutilization of research. The cost is highly um, variable, very expensive. New drugs are coming all the time. And the field is changing. We're in a in a watershed period where we were used to everyone being treated with a general oncologist, which is very important to the, the treatment, um, but really specialty, specialization and, inter, and interdisciplinary care are becoming more of the norm. Let me digress. I'll get to the big picture in just a second. I won't forget your question, but go back like 70 years. We all went to generalists, right? Yeah. But now, we know if we're having a heart attack, we want a cardiologist. If we're having a severe ulcer or some other colitis, we go to a GI doctor. Mm -hmm. Well, that was one level of specialization. 
But what we accept today is if you go to a cardiologist, but you have an arrhythmia, you go to an arrhythmia specialist. We all accept that now. If you have a neuro neurologic problem like, like Lou Gehrig's disease, you go to a, a neuromuscular neurologist. Well, we're at a phase now where cancer is becoming so specialized because of genomics. You, you really need more subspecialists and oncologists. And the field just hasn't acknowledged or recognized that. But we're gonna, we know that's going to be the case in the future. And I want to be clear to all you medical oncologists out there that are generalists, seeing 30 patients a day, you do a very important job and your job's not going to go away. But you need a system that gets you the information you need. So when you get that specific genomic defect for that rare lung cancer, you know what to do. And that's what we're trying to build. So now to get to your question about where do I see us going in the future, I see leveraging data, informing people that cancer is really different, the systems to control both the cost and the quality and the experience and the outcomes and the workforce productivity, are just different from other conditions. And what we want to do with Access Hope is deliver that support into the ecosystem so every member, wherever they are, can get access to the information they need to get the optimal outcome. We've taken on one partner in Northwestern Medicine. We're in discussions with other NCI centers that are like-minded and also want to democratize good cancer care across the country. And quite frankly, we hope others will copy us and compete with us because what's, what we do today isn't working and we want to transform the way, starting with employers, we want, we want to transform the way people receive cancer care here in the country. So Harlan, as, as we uh, wrap things up, and, and again, if you want to jump in, you can. I, I was wondering where you thought the trajectory of large employers, how are they going to evolve in providing health and well-being solutions to their employees. And I think I've answered my own question that if they're in it for incremental gains, they're just going to keep doing the old standardized ways of thinking about benefits. But the way you've described the urgency, it's time for them to take on some transformative leaps. It's time for them to recognize that this goes well beyond just taking care of their employees of their employees. This, this is now a different type of more intimate relationship uh, with their employees that quite candidly is inevitable because beyond just health and well-being, employees expect a lot more from their employers. And the pandemic made that clear, which means what? That the organizations are going to have to start rethinking their overall strategies, let alone about their employee strategies uh, in health and well-being is going to be a big part of it. And that's what I believe, because if this doesn't get resolved now, uh, there's going to be mass exoduses of talent. And where are they going to go? They're going to go to employers that support people like Access Hope, because it's not so much about someone's salary anymore. It's about the totality of how they're treated as an individual. Uh, so do you have any final thoughts before we close, Harlan? Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. I, you know, the timing of this podcast is really remarkable in that we're at an inflection point in, in cancer care. Early in my career, a RAND Corporation study came out that showed only 55% of people got evidence-based medicine generally. Hmm. And we all rallied around that. It was for diabetes and back pain. 
Well, just this month, an article came out that showed that cancer patients, only 45% get evidence-based medicine. So this is a seminal article that is just becoming you know, into, into the community's awareness. So this is all so relevant. And then you add the, not only the focus on DE&I, but the clear lessons of the pandemic that um, underserved minority populations react differently. And it's you know, the case in cancer and worse than in, in other areas that people now know we are at a critical moment and you are completely correct. I think we will be judged as employers and as, as society is, is what actions we're taking to address these, the, these issues. And we are at a transformative time. The, the great news is that new discoveries are happening in cancer care. In fact, we had the lowest death rate in, in cancer care that we've ever had because of these immune modulators and, and, and cell-based therapies. We have an amazing opportunity to make a difference but we have to get it to the patients. And, and, and the best way to do that is for employers to take the lead as they're doing and bring on programs like Access Hope that you know, not five years from now, tomorrow, we'll make sure that we're connecting up patients to NCI level care. You know, I, I, could, I could have started with this, but survival is 22% better if you're at a, NC, a dedicated cancer center than if you're in a, in, in, in a community practice. Now, we can't have everyone go to an NCI center. So the obvious answer is to close that gap. And if you, if you look back at us in history at Access Hope, when we've made those transformative changes, people are gonna say, well, of course you did that. Like, why wouldn't you close the cognitive gap between the two right. sites? That's all we're doing. And then from there, we layered on psychosocial support for the journey. And, and, I, and, I, and I think, that's what employers should be focusing on is how do you take care of the technical, but then how do you take care of the softer side of medicine, the psychological? And that's where I see employers, you know, in, in investing more and more over time. Arlen, as always, my friend, you were wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, you know, it's funny. I didn't ask Harlan a question that I had planned on, and I think you just witnessed it yourself. Uh, the question was, you know, what is it that, uh, how does your heart drive the way you lead? If you didn't feel that today, then maybe we should be thinking twice about what really matters to all of us. So, Harlan, thank you so much again. And as I always close the show, when you lead in the age of personalization, you will see things that others don't. Do what others won't and keep pushing when prudence has quit. Thanks again, Harlan. My pleasure, Glenn. It's great to talk to you. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution.